Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Next week is Transgender Awareness Week, an annual grassroots celebration of trans culture and concerns that takes place in different communities throughout the country, including in New Haven. And so on the first segment of today's show, we'll be talking all about a trans film series that the New Haven Pride Center has helped organize to celebrate Trans Awareness Week here in the Elm City. I'll be joined in the studio by two of the series programmers, Patrick Dunn and Ivy Stacklow, to talk about the movies that will be playing, the different ways that trans people and issues are represented on screen, and the current state of the New Haven trans rights community. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by the Yale Film Study Center's Archer Nielsen to talk about Un Prophète, a 2009 French film by Jacques Audiard that stars Tahar Rahim as a French Arab man learning to navigate the different languages, economies, cultures, and politics of a central French prison in the early 2000s. Un Prophète is playing this Sunday at the Whitney Humanity Center on Wall Street as part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Patrick Dunn and Ivy Stacklow. Patrick is the executive director of the New Haven Pride Center, and Ivy is, among other things, the hotline program director for Trans Lifeline and a grassroots organizer here in New Haven. Patrick, Ivy, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having us, yeah. Okay, so maybe I'll throw the first question to you, Patrick. Um, could you, for some of our listeners who may not already be familiar with it, could you tell us what Trans Awareness Week is and how, how does New Haven celebrate it? Um, well, Trans Awareness Week uh, kind of came out of uh, the creation of Trans uh, Awareness and Remembrance Day, which is November 20th. Um, and in New Haven, uh, over the past several years in particular, we've been re- trying to expand uh, how we're acknowledging Trans Awareness Week and Trans Remembrance Day, both from a political action and organizing perspective, but as well as kind of uh, further exploring and um, highlighting the different aspects of uh, life in the trans community. And um, particularly this year, uh, as the Pride Center as a director, one of my goals was to really uh, continue to work with uh, people like Ivy who have been doing this for years to um, further expand and um, push out information about uh, everything related to transgender life, as well as uh, really push the uh, organizing and activism side of this as well. So Ivy, from what I understand, uh, Trans Remembrance Day is a you know, a pretty somber reflection on all of the trans people who have been killed, assaulted, kind of hurt in in the past year and years. But Trans Awareness Week doesn't just seem to be about reflecting upon the um, the uh, kind of violence perpetrated against trans people, but it seems to be a, a broader kind of celebration and I don't know introspection. Maybe as someone who has uh, participated in in previous Trans Awareness Weeks, uh, what do you see as the kind of the the goal of it, and uh, what has your involvement been in in Trans Awareness Weeks of years past? Uh, yeah, sure. So. Um my primary area of involvement has been around uh, Trans Day Remembrance in particular. But like Patrick said, in New Haven, there has been an effort by the local trans community to expand that beyond just what you called, you know, a somber event um, with reflecting on the lives that we lost and sort of expanding it to also celebrating the lives that continue existing and continue fighting for each other. Um, so that has been kind of a two prong priority for us, both giving people an opportunity to reflect on, um, just really the violence that's perpetrated against our community, um, but also to build together and to create a force to counter that violence in the future and to stand up for each other. So something, um, the verbiage that we've been using, 
when we've been talking about Trans Day Remembrance this year is that we don't just want it to be about trans remembrance. We also want it to be about trans resilience mm. and trans resistance. Um, so all of those things can come together. And that's something we've seen in years past. Can you give us a few or one or two specific examples of events that have taken place in previous Trans Awareness Weeks that you have uh, partaken in, whether, I don't know, lectures, conversations, workshops, uh, like what, what kinds of what kinds of things happen during Trans Awareness Week? And then we'll go to what's happening specifically in, in this Trans Awareness Week. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, the events that we've organized on November 20th in the past have included a speak out where people can come in and um, bring their community members, tell their stories. Um, we shared the stories of the people whose lives were lost that year. Um, we had a march in the streets of New Haven to give kind of more of a vocal presence to the trans community in New Haven. Um, we would have messaging like no more trans lives destroyed, which means, you know, not just murder, but also all the other ways in which trans lives are destroyed and endangered in this country. Um, and then we would follow that up with a community resource exchange that would feature things like just networking, um, an opportunity to meet uh, organizers and providers of resources that are trans-friendly in the area. Um, we always have a clothing swap. Um, we've, we've done movie showings. We've done specific workshops and sit-downs with people from different gender experiences um, around Trans Awareness Week. We've collaborated a lot with Yale students who have done similar things on campus. Um, so there's there's definitely a lot of facets to that. And uh, just in your experience, do people show up? I mean, is, has this been a, a popular uh, week? I mean, New Haven, one thing I so love about living in the city is our activist community. It's incredibly diverse. It's cred- incredibly active. I mean, especially in this era of Trump, there are people out on the green kind of every single day mm-hmm. demonstrating in support of the most marginalized communities that are not, you know, always... Uh, uh, treated as as such locally. I mean, I feel like we have a very proud immigrant rights community, um, gay uh, rights community. I wonder, in years past, do, have you seen people showing up for, for Trans Awareness Weeks previously? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a great turnout um, last year for Trans Day of Remembrance. Uh, we had an action of, and it was somewhere between 50 and 60 people that showed up in the bitter cold. And the community resource exchange following that, we had somewhere between 100 and 200 people um, in total. So that was great. No, people definitely in New Haven, they do show up, um, not just to fight back, but also just to support each other. Mm-hmm. So we have a great trans community here. Um, Patrick, I, this, this show is about movies in New Haven, so I'm eager to, to jump into the, the movies that we'll be playing as part of Trans Awareness Week. But first, I want to ask you about, I don't know, uh, what what other what what will be happening during this year's uh, Trans Awareness Week? I know you have some events at, at Lyric Hall, some at the Pride Center, some at the Church on the Green. Can you give our our listeners a kind of a brief snapshot of what to expect next sure. week? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the big things for me about um, this entire process has been, uh, you know, my role is really a facilitator because I'm a cis man and I don't want to presume that I know what the trans community needs and wants. And I've really been working very hard with Ivy and other members from the community that came forward to kind of build a committee around all of these events. So um, with the exception of one or two things that were really me pushing for them, most of these events have really come out of that committee and out of uh, feedback from our Facebook and, and, and on our our e-blast and such. So um, we're going to kick off uh, the Trans Awareness Week with an incredible performance by um, Alok Vaid Minon, who is uh, an incredible uh, non-binary uh, trans performer. Um, he is a person of color uh, and speaks very 
uh, boldly about uh, issues around gender and identity and many other um, issues, including racism. Uh, we are then going to go through kind of four or five days that include workshops and opportunities for people to come together and share resources, including a Trans Lifeline event, as Ivy mentioned. Uh, we'll also be doing um, a, a workshop in partnership with CT Fertility about trans fertility. Uh, we're going to be doing a conversation um, with a really amazing local uh kind of gender explorer uh, around called gender a la carte, which is meant to be a workshop exploring gender and gender identity and pronouns and all of the other um, various ways that we approach uh, gender and gender identity. Um, And then we'll have incredible films that we're screening. Um, All of the films again came out of conversations at the committee level of, you know, what are the things that we want to highlight? You know, the committee was very clear that they didn't want to just show uh, documentaries and or films that portrayed the kind of hardship of being trans. They also wanted to show the positive and the the um, great experience. Um, some of these films uh, are documentaries, some are, are, are uh, fictional films. And then uh, we go into kind of the biggest portion uh, for, from my perspective, which is the action side of things uh, on Monday, the 20th itself, which is the public speak out, as Ivy mentioned, as well as the resource party, where we will have a lot of really uh, great opportunities for people to share uh, resources uh, within the group, uh, as well as having some healthcare professionals and other people in the room and free HIV testing and all kinds of other things. That's great. I, I know that uh, you recently finalized the schedule for, for the week's worth of celebrations. So, <laughs> so, and I know it's on Facebook, so we'll make sure to, to link to that calendar awesome. so that our listeners can check out in detail where and when awesome. all of these events are taking place. Um, well, let's let's jump into the movie uh, screenings themselves. I'm glad that you, you touched on it by talking about what your uh, kind of committee was thinking about when they put together this slate. Well, first, what... Uh, what what is the committee? Who were the people that were picking uh, which movies to screen as part of this year's Trans Awareness Week? It included a really big, uh, diverse, diverse uh, group of people, including um, activists and you know people that are really doing ground level work in the community. Uh, we had people uh, like Tony Ferriolo, who is uh, you know, the founder of the Jim Collins Foundation here uh, in Connecticut. Um, he uh, is being a part of the process also um, as an advisor. We have members of the Yale and the other academic communities, Southern, um, UNH. We've had uh, students. We've had uh, professors. I mean, it's really been an incredible collaboration of different people, you know, and, and because the meetings are kind of haphazard and have happened kind of uh, at different times, different days. There's also people that are kind of not necessarily sitting at a table, but working through committee members to get, to make sure voices are being heard at the table. And that, you know, really we're trying to hear every voice because I, you know, I, I'm very, very feel very strongly. I want everyone to see themselves in any program that we're doing at the center. Um, And I want you know, I don't want this to feel like, oh, we're only focusing on one piece of the trans community or one, you know, certain types of people within. I really wanted it to feel welcoming and part and, and inclusive of everyone. So um, I think the committee represented that in a lot of ways. And, and I hope, you know, as we continue to build this in the future, that the, that, that continues to grow and, and be even more diverse. You, you sent me the, the list of uh, movies that you'll be playing uh, earlier this week, and a few of them I'd heard of and seen, a few uh, were new to me, and so I was excited to, to learn about uh, new movies. And I'm curious if maybe each of you could pick maybe one movie that's playing uh, this year and talk about uh, why you chose it, why you think the committee chose it, why you think it is an important kind of reflection of the lives of trans people and, and trans issues right now, and why you're excited to, to play it in New Haven. Maybe... Uh, 
you know, start with Ivy and then go to Patrick? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, so the movie that I recommended is a movie that I like to show myself um, at political events, which is um, called En el Cuerpo Equivocado. Um, and that is a Cuban film. It means in the wrong body, um, which is, of course, you know, a phrase that people don't use very much anymore. But it's the story of the first Cuban trans woman to receive gender affirming surgery. Um, and it's a very interesting story of her life and how the Cuban revolution and the Cuban government changed with regard to its support of LGBTQ people and trans people in particular, um, kind of through the eyes of one trans person. Um, it was a very special movie to me, um, as a political organizer to see how, you know, a different system can affect change for LGBTQ people on an economic level and on a social level. And to see that kind of on a very, very personal level, not just through statistics, not just through generalizations, but really through the eyes of a single person. Mm. Um, and I've found that to be a very impactful film for people to see. When when did you first see that movie? Do you remember? Uh, the first time I saw that movie was maybe three or four years ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, I uh, One of the movies I watched in preparation for the show was The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, uh, which is a Netflix documentary about... A, a black trans organizer activist from Greenwich Village who was murdered in, in 1992 or was killed in 1992 and everyone in her community strongly suspects that it was murder. But one thing I was struck by uh, in that movie and in uh, many of the trans movies on this list and that I've seen before is how intimately connected the, the kind of personal and political aspects of uh, these people's lives are. What, what I've, you know, some of the most impactful moments of that documentary for me uh, don't even come around the story of Marsha Johnson, but her friend and fellow activist Sylvia Perez, especially when she's being evicted from her kind of ramshackle home on the West Side Highway because it's mid 1990s New York and Giuliani and and uh, the kind of rejuvenation of Manhattan uh, is deciding that there are certain types of people who are no longer allowed in this community, right? Mm -hmm. Who who uh, are, are no longer uh, the image of Manhattan and have to be kind of pushed under the covers and into the river and and right. into into Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, I I wonder. Uh, Maybe if you could talk for a second more about what, uh, I don't know, how the Cuban Revolution uh, kind of intersected with the life of the character in uh, in The Wrong Body. I'm blanking on the name of the title. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And, and also, I don't know, what, what kind of political uh, motivation or inspiration you got from this particular movie? Um, yeah, definitely. So I think that um, the movie shows a very important transition. Um, and if we look at revolutions historically, right? Um, they don't happen overnight. Change, major change in a system doesn't happen overnight. And that's something that we can learn from both on a macro level and on a micro level. So something that we saw early on was portrayals in the movie of homophobia and transphobia in Cuba that the character faced. Um, and this is a real person. This isn't a made-up character. Um, but going forward throughout the movie, you see how changes in policy, in particular the um, introduction of this in the sex program, which is a uh, massive government-led sex education and LGBTQ education normalization program, um, really impacted people. And you started seeing celebration of LGBTQ lives. Um, and it wasn't through that movie, it was before that I learned how much Senesex had done for Cuban LGBTQ people uh, for example, they have now nationwide systems where if a person is being treated in a homophobic or transphobic way at home or in the workplace or at school, they have a centralized way of reporting that. Um, there's free um, gender-affirming medical treatment on demand. 
um, there's treatment of people as the, their real gender on demand without gatekeeping. And that's a very big deal. And that's something that we don't hear a lot about Cuba in the United States. So it was important for me to learn that. And I think as people in the United States who are looking to enact change, one of the most important things that we can learn from that is that if we build together as a community and we continue pushing towards our goals and we have a goal of building a better system for ourselves, things might not be perfect all the time. They might not be perfect immediately. But if we continue pushing towards that, then we can achieve our goals. And to me, that was a very positive thing to see. That sounds like a pretty perfect articulation of trans resilience that you were getting at <laughs> earlier, Patrick. I wonder yeah. if you could also uh, maybe pick a, a different movie that's going to be playing and t- tell us about why. Well, you, you totally picked mine because I was going to talk about Marsha B. Johnson. <laughs> Riff on it. No, 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 no. Go for it. No, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, there's... I really liked the, that. Yeah, that the, movie, the, the, the film is, it, you know, there's, there's some interesting um, kind of... I, I'm going to use the word controversy around the film because unfortunately... Um, the uh, the director who's an incredible director um, he's also the director of Surviving a Plague which yeah. is an incredible documentary about David the, France I yeah um, but there's there's been some controversy around uh, this film because unfortunately uh, as as the film has come out there's been some discovery that uh, a lot of his research uh, kind of stemmed from a black trans woman in uh, in New York a young black trans woman who did a lot of research around Marsha P Johnson and um, had pitched. A similar film and it did not get made uh so there is some controversy and and i'm actually um really uh looking to to connect with her to try to bring her to new haven because she is just in new york to talk about Marsha. um i'm i'm particularly uh passionate about history which is why i'm i'm excited about this film uh and i'm really excited about um the representation of queer black people and queer people of color uh, in documentary films, because I think um, you know th- there's a huge gap in uh, between telling heterosexual history and stories and homosexual or, or queer history and stories. And when you start looking at queer people of color, that that statistic goes even further down. Um, I have a I have a friend in uh, New York who's a playwright, and he he only writes plays about queer black uh, individuals, and he has huge. Um, you know, kind of hurdles that he has to jump over to get his works produced and, and even read. Um, and so I think it's it's incredible that Netflix invested in creating um, a, a documentary and, and really looking at such an important person in queer history, because um, Marsha P. Johnson really is and uh, was was an incredible, incredible activist in our community um, and did a lot in our community. Um, I actually have a friend that uh, worked at the Stonewall Inn on the the night of the riots. He's in his 80s and he knew Marsha P. Johnson. Um, and so it's it's like that being able to touch our history, which uh, is what makes me really excited about this film. And, and while the film does focus a lot on her death and murder, um, there is there is real history in it as well. And I, I'm excited to be able to uh, kind of tell that story. It, it was really... Uh, startling to me when I was talking to some young activists um, when we were approached by Netflix to to present this film as part of um, November. Uh, and these kind of young activists in their early 20s that had no idea who Marsha P. Johnson was, it just really kind of hurts me um, And it, because she was so vital for our community for many, many years uh, and is is the person that's kind of commonly attributed to throwing that first brick at Stonewall. So, um, it's it's exciting for me to teach kind of through some of this stuff the history of the queer community, which I think is unfortunately not always being passed down in the best way. So that that's why I would be 
excited about that film. I'm also really excited about um, A Self-Made Mad because is, despite the fact that I should have seen this film at least six times in my life, I actually haven't seen it yet. Um, but it's an incredible film about Tony Fariola, who's an, who is in, one of the really incredible advocates that we have for for youth in Connecticut, uh, queer youth in particular, and trans youth in particular. And so it's it's his story, um, and it's, it's very powerful. Uh, and, you know, I actually... Uh, we WNHH has this show uh, hosted by Melissa Luke's uh, um, blanket on the name of the show right now, but she interviewed Tony uh, about the movie about a year ago. So people want to hear a kind of full hour interview with Tony about his life uh, and about the making of this movie, a self-made man. Uh, we've got it in the WNHH archives. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about uh, the representation of trans people on screen, but I'd be remiss if I didn't first say you're, you're also playing tangerine, which mm-hmm. uh, regular listeners to the show will probably you know, recognize because I've, kind of talk about it every chance I can get, um, especially on, on the best films of 2015 episode we had here. This is Sean Baker's 2015 movie about two transgender prostitutes working kind of the non-glamorous side of, of the Hollywood strip. Uh, Sean Baker, the director of The Florida Project, which is one of the more kind of critically acclaimed uh, indie movies playing at the Criterion right now, I believe. But any chance you get to see Tangerine, it is just, I mean, talk about a movie that is just exploding with life and vitality and celebration and, and fun while still in- incorporating the uh, the kind of nature of how you know these people really live their life on the edge of uh, some pretty despairing violence and exploitation, yet the friendship that they're able to, to form is a pretty wonderful thing to behold. Um, but I do, I want to talk, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we were talking briefly before the show about a, a Connecticut, some local Connecticut politician uh, who's transgender who came into office this year. I don't have the name, unfortunately, but this is a, a big year for, for transgender uh, politicians throughout the country, Danica Rome being uh, the maybe uh, most recognizable example. <laughs> My phone seems to have thought that something I said should trigger Siri. But so Danica Rome, uh, uh, an out transgender House delegate in Virginia, uh, two members of Minneapolis's city council uh, identifying as transgender. I wonder if... Uh, you all, as you think about the representation of trans people on screen, is this like a powerful, energetic, kind of positive moment for trans people more broadly in this country? Um, but also, I, I want to ask about screen, too. So um, how do you see people, how trans people represented on screen and movies, TV, artwork? Um, what do you see coming up over and over again? What, what's accurate? What's horribly wrong? I'll let you start, Ivy, because I know you had you were one of the um, committee members that was very vocal about what kinds of films mm-hmm. you should be showing. So, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think a lot of people already know that one of the major issues with on-screen trans representation, even just stereotypes aside, is the portrayal of trans characters by cis actors. Um, and this is, you know, there's multiple articles that were written about this. There's multiple statements that have been made about this and there are multiple multiple talented wonderful trans actors that are out there that need work um but this seems to be a very common issue in the film industry where trans actors are just almost never cast as trans characters so when we when we were going through the list of films one of the most important criteria for me was to find films where trans characters were played by trans actors um not just because it means that the film was produced in a better way with sourcing from the trans community, um, but also because I know that the people who see those films aren't going to have the misrepresentation that, you know, a trans woman is really just a man in a dress, which is what 
having a cis man play a trans woman on screen um, kind of imp- implies. Um, and that's a very harmful thing. And when movies are shown to hundreds and thousands of people, that's the idea that gets ingrained. And that is the type of thing that perpetuates violence against trans people. Um, so that's one of the negative things. Um, in terms of the overlap between um, media representation, political representation, I think that positive gains in both of those regards are a symptom of a strong trans movement. Mm-hmm. We get people in office, or rather people win electoral positions because there is strong trans visibility. One of the things that we saw in the wake of the Trump administration's you know, victory, but also prior to that, leading up to it, we saw liberal politicians say things like, we need to put trans rights on the back burner because it's not a popular issue, we need to work across the aisle, we need to pander to Republicans, and this is not an important issue because this is divisive. Um, one of the things that we see right now is the victory of these seven trans politicians really goes to disprove that and it really makes people who say that kind of stuff look silly and bigoted especially with danica rome i mean what a potent victory Mm -hmm. over an opponent uh you know decades-long incumbent who had fashioned himself as you know virginia's chief homophobe right and this Mm -hmm. is someone who very proudly was the drafter of of the The anti-trans legislation Mm -hmm. um the, uh, Patrick, as we, we near the, the end of the segment, I want to give you a chance as well to talk about, you know, what you have seen, uh, in terms of trans representation on screen. Um, I mean, when, when you talk about, uh, cis people playing trans people, you know, um, Eddie Redmayne and the da- Danish girl comes to mind and Jeffrey Tamborn, transparent. Um, but I do think going back, you know, not too far in cinema history, you know, from Psycho to Mrs. Doubtfire, like there have been plenty of mainstream movies where, um, People, trans, transvestites instead of transgender, uh, transvestites have been represented as, you know, these almost monstrous figures of either comedy or horror. Mm-hmm. Um, people so disturbed that, uh, you know, the, the only, yeah, you know, the explanation for why Anthony Perkins uh, is such a you know, murderer is wrapped up in the way that he dresses like his mom. Um, so it seems like we've come a long way from stuff like that, but... I don't know. Have, have you seen much progress in terms of representation of trans people on screen? I think that, you know, one of the things for me when I look at um, any LGBTQ film uh, that's coming out, uh, there is uh, there's still a lot of uh, of characters. You know, I've been I, I, this isn't necessarily specifically trans, but when I look. I, so I have recently started rewatching like all the old episodes of Will and Grace um, because I was like, oh, that's back on TV. I don't remember anything from the show. I should rewatch it all. And, I, it, and, and you know, it's kind of funny to rewatch it with kind of a 2017 mindset and be like oh everything in this show is so problematic <laughs> um and they even had gay actors playing you know one of the one of the gay characters was actually portrayed by a gay actor um but it, i think that that you know as we look back in film um you know the the best representations often i find in, of either queer culture or trans uh lives and trans uh experience often happens in the indie circuit and less so in the mainstream circuit um and that continues to also feed into what ivy's talking about that in the indie circuit, you're often more likely to find films that have trans actors portraying trans characters versus, uh, you know, a mainstream film like The Danish Girl. You know, the the automatic uh, choice for them is to go to a very mainstream cis actor. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I, I go back to what I said kind of at the beginning of the segment, which is, is I feel like as a as a cis individual, it's really important that I move aside and and make room for trans voices Um 
at the table and not try to speak on their behalf, even even though I have, you know, a hat on my head that allows me to speak on their behalf. It's really important for me to say, hi, I'm Patrick from the Pride Center, and then introduce people that can speak to the real experience. And I think the same thing is true for film. Like, it's really important that, you know, uh, obviously some of the artistic perspectives that some of these people are, especially with mainstream films, are trying to portray um, creates different challenges if they have a character that they want to show uh, as male and female. Um, but there's ways that they can do that with a trans actor just as easily as they can mm-hmm. with a cis actor. And, and it's important that we remember that and, and really try to push some of these filmmakers to think more outside of their little box that they get stuck in in Hollywood. Well, Patrick Dunn and Ivy Stackler are two of the organizers of New Haven's Trans Awareness Week, uh, which is taking place next week. Is there a website or a Facebook page that Facebook. our listeners can go to? Just mm-hmm. search for New Haven Trans Awareness Week. Yeah, or, or go to the New Haven Pride Center's Facebook page. Everything is there. <laughs> Excellent. We will link to it on deepfocusradio.com as well. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about this. Uh, Thank you. I really love these movies and I really love hearing your perspective on why it's important to play them. Awesome. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much. All right, coming up next, a conversation about um, Unprofet, uh, a Jacques Audiard movie from 2009, and a conversation with Archer Nielsen. But first, let's hear a little bit of New Haven indie music, uh, Man from Lowell by Ellison Jackson. Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the second segment of today's show, I'm joined by the Yale Film Study Center's Client Relations and Special Projects Manager, Archer Nielsen, for a conversation about Un Profet. I apologize to all you French speakers for my horrible mispronunciation at every step of uh, this segment. Jacques Odiard's 2009 crime drama about a young French-Arab man, uh, played by Tahar Rahim, who methodically accumulates knowledge, power, money, respect, and a whole lot of other stuff while serving a six-year prison sentence in a central French prison. Uh, there will be a free public screening of Unprofet this Sunday, November 12th at 7 p.m. at the Whitney Humanities Center on Wall Street as part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. Archer, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I briefly alluded to in the minutes before we went on air how this is my first time seeing Unprofet, and oh my goodness, what an incredible movie. But no I, I want to hear uh, maybe from you first about uh, why is this movie included in the treasures from the Yale Film Archive series? Uh, and I don't, what's what's your relationship to this movie? When did you foresee it? What what do you think then? What do you think now? Sure. Well, I can tell you a little bit about why we chose it for this series. I mean, we try with our, every year on this series to choose um, a nice representational mix of the kinds of films we have in our in our collection. We have about five thousand, and um, this spring we're going to be celebrating fifty years of collecting film at Yale. So we have quite a few to choose from, but some just definitely rise to the top. They have something special and. A prophet, or let's just say a prophet, is one of those. Um, it's a, it's a, as you mentioned, it's the story about this young man, and it's a, it really captures you right from the beginning because 
Um, this is a, a guy who's been clearly in and out of the system, on and off the streets his whole life. And the film just starts on the first day of this six-year sentence, and it just you know takes off from there. Uh, it's uh, an incredibly suspenseful film. It's a very well-made film, a well-told film. The storytelling is in, it, is in it is incredible. So I think anyone just interested in film will, will appreciate it. But also in terms of um, why, as people with a particular interest in film, we wanted to show it, is it really, I think, speaks very highly of um um, the work of Jacques Odiard and also a sort of particular place that French cinema is in right now. And, and, and in large part, Odiard has sort of helped helped create that. And so uh, we thought this would be a good way to introduce uh, audiences to sort of a contemporary work as opposed to some of the older works we sometimes show. Um, do you remember when you first came across this movie? and what you, Did you see it when it came out in 2009? I, I did not see it on the big screen, so uh, I advised everyone who's listening to come see it on the big screen on uh, a Sunday night. Um, I, when I saw it, I just uh, I saw it at home, and I was really captivated by it. I think it was actually the first um, Odiard film I saw, uh, and I was this was a few years after it came out. I was, I was really impressed with it. I uh, was particularly impressed with this way that it's it's in many ways it's a genre film it's a crime film it's something that in some ways we think we've all seen before I mean the story of you know a young criminal on the make who's sort of you know moving up the chain of command we've seen in Godfather and Goodfellas and Scarface and so many other things but I think what's really special about this one is it really introduces the sort of emotional side to it and the personal experience of this character and gives us a really subjective view of what he's going through and what he's experiencing and what he's haunted by as 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 he makes his way sort of up in this enterprise. And it was, you know, the, the performances are just uniformly terrific throughout the film, too. You know, I'm, I'm glad uh, you brought up the kind of emotional, subjective mm-hmm. nature of this uh, perspective on the rise of a kingpin. And you're right. I mean, this, these are, this type of crime drama is a staple of contemporary American movie culture, from Scarface to The Godfather. I mean, we're very familiar with kind of wanting you know, to love these, these horrible people committing atrocious acts of violence uh, who accumulate all this power and, and drugs and, and money um, and yet have, I don't know if they have some kind of redeeming aspect to them, but they're certainly fun to watch. Um, I, I do think that... What so surprised me about this movie is the um, how kind of subtly uh, kind of stylized it is in mm-hmm. that the main character is quite a I mean, his one of his strengths in kind of navigating the political and cultural economy of the prison is that he's not as volatile as the man he is set to replace. He's yes. kind of under the tutelage of Niels Arstub. I'm going to butcher that name, but he's a, a Corsican kind of seasoned criminal uh, who wields his power in the prison uh, through just unexpected bursts of violence, right? Mm-hmm. He, has, uh, he has his hair slicked back. Uh, he always has some kind of uh, spoon or fork or otherwise, uh, you know, seemingly anodyne instrument that he will then use to, to gouge you or, or attack you. Um, that's not uh, Tahar Rahim uh, Malik's character's uh, modus operandi. He's much more of an observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's much more patient, uh, soft-spoken. And yet ODR as a filmmaker introduces all of these um, you know, pretty conspicuously stylized elements to the movie, especially the the irises, the the way that mm-hmm. he will focus just a circle of light on a particularly mm-hmm. important uh, area of the frame, and also, of course, the the titles, the way that you know the story is interrupted all of a sudden by the name of a figure, and sometimes those mm-hmm. those people don't even wind up being important. I don't know. It, sure, it, yeah. It's 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 meant to indicate that we have to pay attention to this person, and then they may die in the next yeah. scene. Um, I don't know. Did that jump out at you as well? That contrast between the relative calm of the main character and the um, the kind of exuberant style of the film. Yeah, I think so. And I think that 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 um, 
focus on the Irish you're talking about is it's called uh, Mano Negra, and it's something where the, actually the cinematographer Stéphane Fontaine actually creates that effect by just putting his hand in front of the camera and blocking out all of the light except for the part he wants to see. So it's sort of interesting. But yeah, that's something that has shown up in, in several other ODR films since mm. uh, since then. Um, yeah, I think the stylistic elements are great. There's this sort of um, uh, sort of poetic naturalism to it, this sort of subjective naturalism that all comes with that central character. And it's it's sometimes it's it's you know it's it's it is subtle. Um, it's it's tricky to say some of these images are quite subtle because you know they they will have a character who is sort of on fire you know but 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 it's done in a very subtle way you know I mean it's treated not as this big operatic explosive thing mm-hmm. but these sort of small private intimate moments and that's something you don't see too much in gangster films the sort yeah. of side of it because the characters are always projecting the tough guy image. So they're the sort of only emotion you see in a lot of crime films are these bursts of violence. So this is great to see him sort of quiet and private alone. And I won't spoil anything, but I think they came up with a really uh, innovative way of how to how to convey that for a guy who's ostensibly alone in his cell. So what, it's what a wonderful insight that is. I mean, I think I mean, especially so there are I think that when this movie came out to Harim's performance was compared uh, quite frequently to Robert De Niro's and The mm-hmm. Godfather, too. Yes. Uh, and again, from Scarface of The Godfather, this is a familiar trope, but this character's introduced i mean his introduction to the to the criminal world of this prison is through a proposition of him giving oral sex to another yes yeah. <laughs> another inmate uh and then having uh quite an existential crisis about um the the murder he has to commit uh kind of around that that sexual uh proposition um that definitely it, I, I can't imagine brian de palma throwing in a scene in scarface <laughs> in which al pacino you know becomes the character he wants to be because he's going to fillet another man yeah. that just seems uh inconceivable for an american crime film um are there well let's uh Maybe we can start talking about the context of French crime cinema a little bit, because this is uh, going back to the very early days of narrative cinema, period, let alone French cinema. Um, French people have been making movies about criminal underworlds uh, from Fantomas uh, mm-hmm. uh, onward. And this movie, I think it's interesting how it straddles the line between American and French crime cinema. Because again, maybe the most immediate references are those Scarfaces and Godfathers, but there's also, maybe you mentioned poetic. Poetic realism is a very you know Im- important uh, moment in the history of French cinema. Is do you see this uh, this movie sitting within a larger context of French crime films or French prison films for that matter, or is it totally new? I think yeah, I think it definitely draws from these. Um, Jacques Audiard is a definitely a student of world uh, film history, mm-hmm. and his father was a, a screenwriter directed some films and so um Odiard as a young man just grew up watching any film he could watch all all weekends long he spent doing this and um even some of the he's called sort of the French Scorsese but of course Scorsese is of course the ultimate world film scholar slash director and so he's he's definitely I think referencing a lot of these earlier films um and it goes back to, I mean, I, I would say one touchstone for this that might not seem that obvious is even something like Pepe Lamoco, which the Du Vivier film, which is full of this sort of poetic realism and is sort of a, a, a precursor to noir. This is sort of a almost post-noir. I wouldn't even call it neo-noir, a prophet. But, you know, it, that's sort of reversal because there you have a, a, a charismatic French character who goes to Algeria and he's stuck in a sort of prison, whereas this is an Algerian man who ends up in France stuck in a prison. So it's switched. But but I think that, that sort of poetic realism of both films ties them together. Um, then there's, you know, you have this really long tradition of classic French f- uh, crime film, which is on the surface does not really look like a prophet at all because you have these films that are 
Um, very much about very sort of attractive criminals in fancy suits stealing jewels and breaking into safes and all this sort of thing. So Rififi, like, maybe Honor Among Thieves, Bob Le Flambeau, these sort of films that are very um, much about sort of the, the, the nobility of the uh, the uh, work that goes into crime and that sort of thing. So, But, um, you know, so this obviously this film with these guys in these sort of ill-fitting sweatpants and sneakers doesn't maybe fit in that model. But I think that the, both... Um, uh, Unprofet and these sort of classic films both share this real emphasis on the work of being mm. a criminal and the yeah. process of how you get into that role and what you have to do. And that's really that sort of um, education that you alluded to that that uh, Malik goes through as he's becoming a criminal is one of the most fascinating parts. And sort of watching them, his machinations as he tries to build alliances and set up these deals is is really impressive. You know, there are a handful of montages that do really recall Scorsese, especially in its use of popular music. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking in particular of when Rahim's Malik begins to kind of first get involved in the drug trade and all of a sudden he has all of these consumer goods coming yes. into prison, right? And he's watching pornography and then having sex and mm-hmm. then he has people beaten up, you know, enemies in a shower and it really feels like a Goodfellas moment. But I think much more within, well, speaking to your comment about um, uh, the kind of French movies of the 1930s and the mm-hmm. Jean Caban, uh, Marcel Carnet kind of poetic realism moment in French crime cinema, uh, if maybe one word could describe that movement, it's it's fatalism in that everything kind of these uh, tragic kind of criminal antiheroes um, always, you know, th- th- we know that their end is not going to be a positive one uh, from the very beginning of the movie, right? There's no, um, even if we do sympathize with them, even if we hope that they succeed, uh, there's something about the kind of culture and ambiance of the moment that lets us know that there's no, there's no hope for them and this crime is uh, just maybe a temporary way to alleviate some of the frustration, but ultimately just a futile endeavor. Mm. In this movie, I would say it's especially the way it ends. It's not fatalistic at all. I mean, no. maybe there are hints of the great cycle of, of criminal activity and that maybe, you know, Malik can look forward to a future of being ousted by some protege right. in the way that, uh, that Caesar is in this movie. But this movie is very much about the up and up, about a character sure. who is upwardly mobile, uh, who is able to take advantage of a kind of post-nation state, uh, uh, kind of multinational, multi-ethnic France, uh, through his accumulation of knowledge, through his way to, you know, he's flying all over the country, <laughs> dealing with all of these different uh, elements of, of the kind of drug and casino business in France. And it's very much one about... Uh, you know, it's it's like a Horatio Alger story uh, in the French contemporary crime world. Do you see any of that kind of fatalistic element of French cinema in this movie? Or is this the American rags to riches story? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure how fatalistic I see it. I mean, I think that in addition to those things, it then went this, you know, he's also drawing on sort of the violence that you get in through 70s cinema, the racial issues that come up in 80s French crime cinema. Mm. And then he comes to sort of an interesting place where because he is turning this sort of internally, I think once you really, maybe it's hard to make a very pessimistic film after you've sort of gotten into the heart of a character that much. You know, you don't want to see them suffer. But I think, you know, one of the things that shows up in Odiard's films quite a bit um, because this is this was his fifth feature film as a director, and basically every film up to this point had been the story of this sort of charismatic young man who's sort of between a few worlds, who um, really tries to has to find a place for himself and and get some a little bit of redemption. And in order to do that, he has to sort of conquer some sort of father figure that he has going out there. So in this case, it's uh, it's would be Cesar Luciani, the the mob boss, is his his main nemesis. And and, and so in each of those films, there is something sort of it's almost like a coming of age moment where he go they, these leads in these Odiard films sort of go through that process. I think also one of the things that's I mean, if there's some sense of fatalism, I think there's. <laughs> 
there's something about the sort of arbitrariness that of how he gets into these crimes. I mean, mm-hmm. he's chosen to do this 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 hit that you referenced earlier, just sort of randomly. It could have been anyone. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or right place in the right time, I guess, depending on how you look about at the rest of the story. And I think what's but so it, beautiful about the way that Odiard sets up those moments outside of the prison, those sudden uh, kind of explosions of violence, is that we, the audience, are as much in the dark as Tahar Rahim's character is, mm-hmm. in that he has no idea what he's being sent out to do, right. Uh, right? And often he's quite terrified, but the way we see that his kind of education as a criminal, as you put it, is... Um, is through that kind of calm, patient observance that he is able to uh, exude in any, in even the most kind of chaotic of situations. Um, I, I do want to, I feel like the um, French have been particularly bad in their cinematic history in dealing with issues of uh, kind of French-Arab relations. I mean, the, I think the kind of most well-known and most explosive movie about uh, France and the Arab world is, and the North African world is the Battle of Algiers, and that's an Italian-made movie. Um, uh, which is referenced in this as they're throwing sort of burning paper out of the window. Oh, the yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very much so. Um, I, I wonder what you see as uh, this movie's commentary on contemporary French-Arab relations, if it is saying anything beyond, I don't know, watch out for <laughs> people yeah. who can leverage things in a post-racial way. Well, it came out at an interesting time. It came out two years after Sarkozy was elected. It came out during a summer when the um, uh, uh, immigration minister was having a series of sort of town hall meetings around France on the nature of national identity. And so this film really became a bit of a touchstone around that. And you had people on the on, on one side of the debate who said, looked at the film and saw, oh, look, it's it, a bunch of Arabs or criminals. This is a bad thing. We need to limit immigration. On the other side, you had a bunch of people who were saying, look what these people are having to go through. Look what we are, we are causing the criminal problems by failures in the assimilation system and, and you know, locking people away and things like this. So it really, uh, you know, was whatever political position you came to, like this film with, you could you could sort of find some truth in it to back your opinion. It also, in terms of, you know, prisons was a huge issue because after this, there were huge debates about the the quality of prisons and the conditions of prisons in France. So it was, uh, yeah, it's um, it definitely his experience, the character Malik's experience is really it's it's a funny thing because in some ways, even though he's a criminal, he's sort of living the model immigrant life. I mean, he's studying, he's learning languages, he's learning a skill, even though it's maybe a criminal skill. He's sort of showing obedience to these you know French people who are over him. Um, and so in some ways, you you know, you can understand how this is, as you say, a Horatio Alger, Horatio Alger story, because he's he's sort of doing everything right, but just sort of can't get ahead in the straight world and sort of can only find a place in this criminal world. I, I do love how he articulates what maybe what's maybe closest to his mantra about two thirds of the way through the movie uh, in which he is bargaining with a kind of Muslim contingent in the prison. Uh, and one of the leaders calls him out as taking advantage of or exploiting, you know, their goodwill to advance himself. And he mm-hmm. says, what does it matter what I do as long as we're both happy at the end of it? <laughs> that, yeah. does seem, that seems to be a key break with the kind of very racially charged, violent, kind of hateful um, mob violence led by the Corsicans before him, whereas he does seem to legitimately be trying to uplift everyone a little bit mm-hmm. and as long as he is the one lifted kind of highest above and what i won't give away the final shot but what an incredible closing scene in which he basically he becomes the you know the godfather to this this family to to his kind of newly adopted son and we see 
uh, this whole, I don't know, cavalcade of, of um, adherence following in his wake to look forward to <laughs> much crime success in the future. Um, I do also want to throw in how this is a, a prison movie, and the French have made some great prison movies in years mm-hmm. past, including A Man Escape, which I know was played at the Whitney Humanity Center uh, a few years ago. Um, as I don't know, as a final comment, are any uh, any thoughts on this as a prison movie? Are there is a prison prison movie genre one that you're particularly fond of? Or you think the French do well? Well, I think this is a you know it, it really treats the pr- the prison becomes a microcosm for French French society in this film, and so it definitely um, not in a heavy handed way at all, but it definitely sort of brings in all of the problems that are not all but many problems facing French society and 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 sort of shows their evolution through the film, and so I think that that's wise. I think it. It's also an interesting film in that it doesn't really show, uh, I mean, there are, there's a bit of the film that takes place outside of the prison, but it's essentially entirely in the criminal realm. I mean, you don't really get the, the non-criminal characters in this sort of film. It sort of seems a France that's, uh, or a modernity that's just completely corrupt, but it's about people trying to find a way to sort of rise up and, and do well in that system. Well, uh, A Prophet is playing on Sunday night at 7 o'clock at the Whitney Humanities Center, which is 53 Wall Street. Uh, and Wall Street and Church. Uh, it's a free screening. It's part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. Check it out. You won't regret it. Uh, it's really a wonderful film uh, from from this the past 10 years. Um, Arthur Nielsen works at the Yale Film Study Center. Thank you so much for coming on and Thanks chatting about it. Me. I really loved it. Um, you can find a recording of this episode and over two years of conversations about New Haven and movies at deepfocusradio.com. And we will catch up with you uh, next Thursday at noon for another Deep Focus episode. <laughs>